before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Grant Williams Podcast. My guest, as you're about to hear, is a remarkable man with a multi-decade background in business, the vast majority of which he spent in Germany. So Stephen Wilkinson is a gifted communicator. He's a profound thinker, an enormously talented writer, and someone I'm very proud to call a friend. Now, as all good friends should, Stephen recently wrote me a long email to explain why I was completely wrong in the assumptions I'd made about the likely short-term future of the European project in my most recent edition of Things That Make You Go Hum, Apocalypse Now Redux. So, like Louis Garve before him, when I dared take on China, I asked Stephen if he'd mind joining me on the podcast to ensure my humiliation was public. And with a little more relish than I'd anticipated or hoped for, I have to say, he very kindly agreed. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Sir Stephen Wilkinson. So Stephen, welcome. It's so good to see you, uh, it, even if it's virtually this time as opposed to in person. Thanks for doing this. Very much looking forward to it. Delighted that you asked me on. Well, look, as I've already uh, established in, in my introduction to this conversation, the subject at hand is Europe and um, the piece that I wrote fostered a piece that you wrote, which I found infinitely more interesting than my own, I have to say, and infinitely more on point, I think, in given what's happening in Europe right now. So so let, let's talk about what is happening in Europe. My supposition, which I'll go over briefly for people that didn't read it, was that we may be at, once again at a point where the stresses and strains put upon Europe, or the European project, I should say, by having a monetary union but no fiscal union and, and, and a, a, a promised but not delivered banking union, may finally be reaching a point of criticality. Uh, and that's something that you kind of picked apart beautifully in your latest Pitchfork Papers piece. So given that you have an awful lot more experience in Europe, I, I want to get you to lay out how you see the project not necessarily within the context of my piece, but really with a fresh perspective of your own. But before you do that, perhaps you could let the people listening who aren't familiar with your background in a little bit on your on your relationship with you at the time you spent there, because I think that's important to understand that this is a grounding of someone that's spent you know, a lifetime there, basically, rather than just one of those English guys like me that opines on Europe from afar. I will gladly do that in as succinct a way as possible. I, I left the UK... Um, after my time at Durham University in um, in 1987, I'd, I'd married very young to I'd married a German girl, um, and I'd spent some of my university time in Germany. And I, that's she was a mate of a mate of mine, um, and I had the opportunity in early 1987 of um, of working for an American bank. We were just opening an office in Munich. And I sort of jumped at the opportunity, um, mainly because I really didn't know what, how I was going to feed my freshly established family with a degree in German literature and a focus on medieval German. So I had a, my German was, was okay, and I had an orientation of German, but the idea of actually studying something that might make me a salary was quite appealing. And I 
joined Merrill um, in 1987 in the summer, just before the crash. So two months, three months prior to the, the October breakdown. And I'm absolutely convinced I would never have been hired because I had a hiring freeze immediately afterwards and things changed after that 1987 crash. But anyway, I was in and <laughs> and I did, I made the best of it and found that I was actually quite interested in that and, and stayed in financial markets more or less for a number of years. And I suppose I never left, but my interest has always been in business. And what I found fascinating in Germany was there was these incredible businesses, these Mittelstand businesses, manufacturing and exporting all over the world, with a very low grasp of finance. They really had no clue. And financial statements weren't something they looked at. The average German business gets monthly statements from their tax advisors and accountants that are completely incomprehensible. The only people who understand them are other accountants and bookkeepers. As management tools, they are useless. And I was fascinated because I was used to seeing financial statements in a certain presentation. You, know, you had the balance sheet, you had the P&L, and if you were lucky, you had a cash flow statement, and you had notes, and you had some management explanation. And all you got in Germany was this, this jumble of numbers that were ledger accounts presented I don't know, alphabetically or something. And they were, they were useless, completely useless. And I came to realize that the way that Germany was funded and the way that German, the Germans interacted with money was fundamentally different to the way that Anglo-Saxons think about money and think about the way that capital interacts in their businesses. Money was just another input variable, and there was lots of it because Germany's massively overbanked, full of regional banks. Every region had its own sort of hidden champions and Mittelstand industry, and the job of the banks was to give them money. That was you know, to keep employment going and to keep working capital levels where they needed to be, and it was, all, it was mostly subsidized through the Landesbanken and the Sparkassen and the Fox and Raiffeisen Bank, which is a cooperative banks, that all somewhere along the line had government guarantees or, or regional guarantees. So capital was cheap. People didn't really think about it. But banking was relationship-based, although it was moving more towards the, um, to the centralized data-driven model. It was still very much, it was very generous. And every single German businessman that I talked to at a certain level so low level to mid level had personal guarantees, and the banks were fine because they had liens on the property, and the property you know they had it for generations, and it was going up, and it was worth many times the value of the working capital loan. So the whole role of capital was a different one because Germany had never gone through that secondary banking crisis that the UK went through. And I remember, I don't remember the details, but I remember the the atmosphere of panic in the business community because my family were in business when banks started calling in loans and secondary banks you know midlands was midland was tottering and barclays was tottering and all the secondary banks were tottering that was the slater walker crisis um, 1973 and 74 and that accelerated a shift in in the way that uk businesses regarded the stability of their banking relationships in other words, they, didn't, they knew they didn't have any stability. And that forced a re 
equitization of balance sheets and the diversification of different sources of long-term funding and allowed that Anglo-Saxon mentality of getting onto the stock market, getting a listing to flourish, particularly as we then moved into the 80s. And that never happened in Germany. The idea of a German Mittelstand company floating, that was something that only very, very few did, and they were a bit dodgy. So the, the whole, my, my, I've sort of got myself off track, but my, I have been on that cutting edge between real business and the financial markets for all of my life. And I've always seen myself as a translator between those two often very different worlds. They think differently, they have different mental models, they have different language, they have a different approach to capital. And I've always seen myself as being in, the, in that liminal area between the two, having an understanding of how both think and acting as a translator between those two worlds, so in a nutshell. Yeah, and, and so, you know, that time, and you spent just shy of 30 years in Germany, which is, which, is, which is for most people an entire career. Got another career going now, but we'll park that for another day, hopefully. And, and, and what I want to talk about is Germany within the context of this EU project, because I think those of us who've kind of observed this passing parade for the last 20-odd years now, after the GFC in in 2008, obviously, the stresses became apparent quite quickly. And, and you know, I, I kept replaying Margaret Thatcher's final speech in, in Parliament, talking about where she saw the European Union would finally end up without the fiscal union, exclusively being a monetary union. And it looked incredibly prophetic. And I think the Brits kind of sat there and thought, well, this was always going to happen. In Europe, it was a slightly different view. But always the key to the whole thing was going to be Germany. And, and I think Many of us outside Germany made certain assumptions about how Germany would react to given stresses on the system, and, and more importantly, why they would react that way. And the piece you wrote recently in the Pitchfork Papers, which I thought was absolutely tremendous, went some way to explaining to those of us who don't have the kind of background you have in Germany, why we may be very wrong about how we think about Germany's response to this. So if you, I'm going to leave all the heavy lifting to you, but perhaps you would kind of crystallize the general ex-Deutschland view of Germany and its place in the Union, its likely reactions, and then give us some color on the reality of that, because it's um, it's wholly different, I think, to the general perception. Um, that's, yeah, I'll try. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I realize it's a sweeping <laughs> question. Um, make a, what I will try and do is answer it backwards. Okay. Um, because that's how I came to the piece. You did a really useful and very enjoyable Twitter space with Doomberg and a chap called Wall Street Silver I've never yes. heard of before, but um, where there were something like 2,000 people on it, and it was fabulous. And it, they invited you on specifically to talk about your the end of the euro and the end of the, and the European banking crisis, which you had laid out very intelligently and logically, I thought, in your latest things about you go hmm peace and you said something which was a sort of trigger moment for me and what you said was there are still people alive today who can remember the hyperinflation of the 1920s so then you went off and exposed on and left that there and that triggered something in me firstly i thought is he right because the great inflation was between 1921 and 23 
which is exactly 100 years ago. That means mm-hmm. in order to have lived through it, you have to be 100 at least. And in order to have any recollection of it, you would have to be 110. So apart from a few sort of dribbling outliers, the probability of that statement being true was close to zero. So I thought, well, if that's not true, what does that mean? Because you're building a model or a narrative around that that is feeding into your explanatory world of today. And the explanatory world is very simple, and that is the Germans have this inbuilt resistance to inflation. They are terrified of hyperinflation, and therefore they won't stand for this. And they won't stand for this means there will be a reaction within the population that might lead to significant political change, which will then lead to Germany saying, we've had enough of this. That was the logical chain that, that was implicit in your statement. But if, if the statement isn't true, there aren't any, if there aren't any people alive anymore, then what does that mean for that logical chain of argument? So I then went through and said, I believe that too. Up until that second, that was my sort of foundational narrative because I'd grown up in the 80s with my first sort of, and I was immersed in Bundesbank politics and Mm. the weight and presence of the Bundesbank in German life and the the pride that the the average German citizen attached to the Deutschmark. And I was still, I was there when the change from the old Deutschmark banknotes to the new Deutschmark banknotes um, happened. I noticed the hesitation around those banknotes. I noticed how the Bundesbank put its entire weight behind explaining the logic of them and what they were. And they made sure they were absolutely beautiful. And they were, without doubt, conceptually, artistically, from their intellectual content, they were beautiful banknotes. And I remember thinking at the time, those are beautiful banknotes. And people like having them in their hands. There's something special about them. And I love them. I have a collection of them. I've got all of them crisp and with the story. And there's a book about them. But I realized that there was a completely different relationship between the Germans and their Bundesbank and their money. And it was a source of great pride to them. And I haven't changed that narrative in the last 30 years until last week when you spoke. And I suddenly realized wait a second, if there's nobody alive left today, and if the Germans have taken one one false promise after the next without any form of resistance apart from grumbling, well, then probably my model is wrong and my narrative is wrong and that things have changed and they have forgotten and there is a more important precedent or there's a more important priority than the stability of their money. Because the Deutschmark, and I suddenly realized that the French have won. They have neutered the Bundesbank. The Bundesbank is a is a rump of what it was. It's been entirely absorbed into the EZB or the ECB. There are no hard bankers left. There are no hard money men left. You know, the Schlesingers of this world, who was one of my heroes um, of the post-war German order, he was a phenomenon of the old Bundesbank and its reputation. And there's not one of them left. You know, they might meet in a pub in 
just outside Frankfurt somewhere and reminisce about the olden days, but they've got no policy weight and they've been marginalized. And the only thing the Bundesbank still does beautifully is produce its monthly reports with its, you know, monetary figures and its uh, statistics and they are, you know, their works of art, but that's it. And the Germans have been duped again and again and again. I remember Theo Weigel coming back and saying the euro is going to be just as as hard as the Deutschmark. Yeah. And these are the criteria. And we remember that from 1995, I think it was. And he came back waving the bit of paper, you know, um, Deutschmark in our times or whatever it was. And Shame it's yeah. all And it was all rubbish. It was all rubbish. And it's always been rubbish. Because the people driving this narrative had absolutely no interest in sound money, economics or anything else. This was always political. And the Germans are not, I'm just going to say they're not a very political folk, not nearly as political or as savvy or as Machiavellian as the French. And you know, this was always a long game bank robbery by the profligate nations for the German treasury. It was that simple. And, you know, and whether it was the promise of, of not funding all these profligate nations, you know, the, the, the pigs, um, well, the, Germany didn't officially do it, but they just got the banks to do it instead. The banks yeah. were buying sovereign debt. The banks were buying sovereign debt to then get bailed out by, um, by the government. So the government was doing it just in a circuitous route. So every single promise that was made to the German people to protect the integrity of the Deutschmark and the currency in their pocket was worthless the moment that it was uttered because there was never any intention of doing it. And even if there was the actual economic reality was such that it could never it could never work and you know bernard connolly pointed that out and pointed out the the political machinations behind that in 1995 before the euro was even launched and uh, and we just survived the crisis britain narrowly got out of the snake or whatever it was the european monetary um, system yeah, exchange rate mechanism, in, 19, yeah. Yeah. in 1992, an exchange rate mechanism. That killed Thatcher because Lawson effectively ruined the radical conservative revolution that she was spearheaded. He ruined it by his obsession with the Deutschmark and wanting to be like Germany. But you can't be like Germany unless you are Germany. Um, because Germany had a completely different banking system. It hadn't had its secondary banking crisis. It didn't have the industrial legacy of sclerosis that Britain had. It didn't have any of those things. It was a completely different economy. And for anybody, any chancellor or treasury secretary or government to hook its fate to another country, a country's economy, because it wants to be like them, you know, that's like tagging along with somebody who is on the sports team and going along to training with them and being a puny little weed and not having doing any of the things that they do when they're not on track. Yeah. And so I've never really I've 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 never looked at that project, the Euro project, as anything other than a political shill. And when I saw that anti-fragmentation word, that new mintage, I had to laugh because I mean, who do they think they're fooling? We're pulling some supercalifragilisticexpialidocious name out of a bag and hoping that, or thinking that people are going to take it seriously. And we were way past that. So we're just waiting for the party to finish. Um, so anyway, that's, 
that's my, that's my take on it. Yeah, I'll come back to that anti-fragmentation thing because I, I think that might be important at some point if we ever find out what it is. But um, it's funny, you know, the beauty of writing things and, and putting them out there is really in the moments where guys like you who I respect so much come back to me and say, you're wrong. And things like that are literally the best part of it because it gets you to, to think about it. And when you, when you wrote to me about that after that spaces, you, you very kindly sent me a, a, a really long email laying out your thoughts, which I, I, I read with great gusto. And it got me thinking about what I'd said and what I felt I meant. And I realized that what I meant was there are people who, for whom it was a visceral memory, i.e. they were the children and grandchildren that spoke to their grandparents and their grandparents described the horrors of hyperinflation and that was enough for them, for it to be real to them. You know, because I, you know, I remember the, the stories that my grandfather told me about his youth and, and they were very real to me and, and you know, kind of, I, I felt like I'd lived through him. And so I thought to myself, you know, that's what I meant, but what you wrote made me think about that. And I realized after reading your, your email, you know what, you're right. It's a story. It wasn't an experience. And so that is dead. That memory of the Weimar Republic, as, as real as it might be in hearing the stories from one of your grandparents, it doesn't carry the same weight as it does for you if you had to burn a wheelbarrow full of money to keep the house warm. So it really got me thinking about this too. And I realized that you, you know, you're absolutely right that that, that mindset is gone. And that sense of we non-Germans, that the Germans are a certain way when it comes to money, they have, they may have been the last bastion, but they've also been overrun by this project and by the, the, the political ambitions of those that tried to, to put the thing together. And so I'm kind of left wondering where that leaves us because that's been a linear process, but mankind is cyclical in nature. So we have this linear process of, kind of eviscerating the Bundesbank, emasculating Germany, and pushing forward this, this idea that none of it really matters. We can always just print our way out of trouble and we can keep a political union together by throwing bones to the guys who need it against the backdrop of something that any look through history will tell you is cyclical and we will reach a point at some juncture where that no longer works because the whole the house of cars comes tumbling down. So... If you agree with that, and if you don't, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. Where do those two lines cross, do you think? Where does this linear progress towards a European ideal meet the circle of mankind, of inflation, of prosperity? Is there a point where they cross? And if so, what do you think that looks like? I absolutely think there's a point at which they cross. I just think that we, who think like this, and you, get, you keep getting Keynes quoted at them, the market can be wrong longer, <laughs> yes, than, yes. You know, longer than you can be solvent, that we have underestimated dramatically the sheer bloody-minded political will to defy gravity and make this work. And we are living in an age in which, because of the fiat nature of our currency, that is possible. Money has been entirely politicized. And so they can keep this show on the road much longer than we thought they would. We, you know, we and I, I use that term as a sort of collective for all the people who, who knew that endless debt creation could not be continued. 
It just can't. But we always asked ourselves, I wonder how this, I wonder how they're going to get down from here. And we assumed, well, the bond market will take care of it. Right. Well, <laughs> we don't have one. <laughs> they bought that too. Um, so, <laughs> so all the mechanisms, and then we say, ah, well, the banks can't do it. Well, yes, they can. <laughs> they just have to change the rules. And they're doing, the banks collectively are doing what Havelstein was doing in the 1910s to 18, which was monetizing government debt. That's what he was doing. That's what yeah. got Germany into trouble. And we're doing it now. It's just at a much larger scale. It's much more prevalent throughout all economies. And we have just under, underestimated the political will to keep it going. And I have no idea how long that political will can defy gravity. How long King Canute can sit there and the waves actually obey him? Uh, I did, with you know, thousands of peasants digging a hole in the beach so that the water company... At some stage, you know, as Benjamin Graham wrote in Storage and Stability, muscles will grow tired. Yeah. At some stage, it, it, those lines will cross. And the answer to that is, well, then you have to go back to cycle. That's where the cycle helps us, or the seculum. Um, and before we go on to that, because I'm convinced that we'll walk at least three, three miles down that road and not come back to this point, one of the things that helped me frame my things of change narrative was the interview that you had with Marco Papic and the book that I read, um, Geopolitical Alpha, mm-hmm. in which he talks about the median voter. Yeah. And, and, and it, it's no longer a question of, are there still people who remember that and for whom that is the sort of the touchstone? The question is, is the median German voter, does he or she have even a fraction of interest in that? And, and Ronnie Stoffler tweeted a graph the other day of the median and average wealth of all sort of 30 or 40 nations. So what the average was and what the median was. In Germany, the median wealth is right down at the bottom of the pile. There's sort of like 60,000 euros compared to, I don't know, 250 in the United States with a big gap and an even bigger gap between median and, and average. Well, that means the average German doesn't have anything. Why would I be that interested in the erosion of the value of money? I don't have very much. Median. And so the median has got other concerns. And they're the concerns that are being fed to him or her every single day about climate change and about Ukraine and Russia and all these things that they have to do. And now the median is now giving up their obsession with alternative energy sources because, you know, it's just not working. And they need something. So they they have a different set of concerns to the ones that their grandparents had, completely different. And Marco Papage gave me the framework within which, if you like, to modulate that. The, the median voter is not in the vaguest bit interested in saving or preserving capital because they don't have any. Well, it's interesting, and I think we should talk a little bit about Marco's other framework, about constraints and preferences here, because I think that's another important factor. But before we get to that, I just want to touch on that, that median voter thing, because you know, I've long held the belief that amidst all the madness that we've seen and all the programs that we 
felt sure were doomed to fail, all the get-out-of-jail-free cars that these guys were quietly printing under the table thinking, well, we can throw this at it and that at it and people will believe us and we'll get away with it and whatever it takes and all these kinds of things. It was long my contention that the one thing that could upend all of that would be inflation, would be the return of meaningful inflation. On the one hand, you can do things from a monetary perspective when you have no inflation that can solve all kinds of problems. But if you tie one of your hands behind your back through the appearance of, in some places, double-digit inflation, it does hamper the ability you have to do, quote-unquote, whatever it takes. And if I think about the median voter in Germany being that low on the totem pole, I have to think that inflation being a meaningful problem to them might reorient and reposition their own priorities away from climate change and away from green energy, as, as they've done on a, on a, at a government level. You know, they're talking about, finally, maybe talking about talking about this nuclear chaos that they've unleashed on themselves. Does that not mean that the median voter, when inflation is a real problem, is going to be actually more sensitive to this and is going to be more angry about money and about the soundness of it within their understanding of that term, i.e., my salary is sound enough to be able to afford to feed my family and, and put petrol in the tank of my car? Eventually. Right, okay. Eventually, yes. I mean, was it de Tocqueville that said every civilization is three square meals away from chaos? Yeah, chaos, yes. Well, let's assume that to be true. California has just started handing out money. Yes, as a solution to inflation, yes, exactly. So, you know, instead of just handing it out to banks... We've probably got quite a few more ludicrous, I'm going to call them socialist or collectivist tricks in that particular bag that the government will use to fend off that very day. And as long as people are getting free money, somehow, in this desperate attempt to keep the narrative going, I wouldn't bet against it. I mean, we grew up with the phrase don't never bet against the Fed. Um, and if you take the Fed as being the central banks, well, look what the central banks are doing. Mm -hmm. they, they have, they've shown no signs yet that their, their creative accounting is coming to an end. And in fact, you know, their ability to magic words that mean nothing but that sound clever, and I'm sure doctoral thesis will be written on anti-fragmentation in the next 12 to 18 months and garner great prizes, they're not at the end of it yet. And that's where the cycle comes in. Because underneath your linear degradation, there is all the power of the cycle. And the cycle is inescapable because it is a permanent feature of our human condition. Mm -hmm. And the very fact that the, the median German voter is no longer focused on the very thing that 100 years ago was right at the front of the median voter's daily um, obsession and fear is a sign that we are coming to the end of the cycle. And my own sort of model of where we are is that 18-year rolling cycle of land value with 14 up years and four down years. And if you mark the beginning of, you know, that Henry George vaguely alluded to, but if you go back 200 years, that 18-year that cycle is 
is almost perfect in its wave formation. And what I've been doing recently is taking that 18-year cycle, the beginning of it I'm putting in 2012, which is four years after the 2008 crash. Mm -hmm. So those are the four down years, and then we started in 2012. Well, that takes you 14 years, two times seven, up to 2026. Six. Um, and then the four down years being the years that take us up to the end of the decade, which, funnily enough, almost perfectly matches the fourth turning. Fourth turning. Exactly. Just thinking exactly um, the same thing. Yep. And, and so you've got this confluence of, of events that are like, a, like an orchestra. They're coming to a crescendo. And if you listen to some of the, the great Tchaikovsky, we're not allowed to play Tchaikovsky because he's Russian, but if, if you were to listen to, you know, secretly listen to Tchaikovsky in the big symphonies, the crescendo comes, there were sort of three or four runs at it. And it's, you can feel the orchestra and the music just gathering impetus and momentum and it gets warm and then it slows down and warm. And then at the end, you just get everybody going mad on the, on the bongos and the, the cymbals and everybody, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the, the conductor. <laughs> tearing his clothes off and i think that's what's happening where this is this is almost symphonic and we get we're getting a, a surge and then a, a down and then a surge and the surges are getting are getting closer together and my guess is that somewhere into 2025 the whole thing will come crashing down and that's when you overlay ben's nominal wealth and nominal um gdp or nominal economic activity over it and you realize that whatever happens next that disparity between real wealth or the real wealth that the economy is creating and the nominal value of wealth that gap is going to be closed next time and as ben points out quite rightly it will be horrible and now this is ben hunt we're talking about and not ben graham we should we should uh, we should make a note Absolutely. This is Ben Hunt and his, his hollow men graph, which I thought was superb. And it's sort of tying in, a, a, okay, I will admit that I am now looking for confirmation bias in my yep. model. Um, I don't doubt that at all, but it feels right. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Over the last year, the conversations I've had um, on this podcast and in private with people, perhaps the most prominent among them has been Felix Zulaf, who on this podcast gave a timeline almost identical to yours, that 2025 was when we would finally see the, the top. And, you know, I've, I've almost fought against that because it's, it felt so implausible to me given how extreme things had gone. But the longer I watched what happens, the longer I read the thoughts of smart guys like you and smart guys like Felix and put this thing together, it feels more and more like, as you say, there is a coming together here of all kinds of different forces, different length cycles, different types of cycles that are all pointing in that direction. And looking at this anti-fragmentation grenade that they're going to, um, that they're going to throw into markets, it does get the feeling of, okay, well, we can try another one of these and maybe they'll buy it again this time. We'll throw it in there anyway and, and who knows. But it brings me back to this constraints and preferences model that Marco lays out so beautifully in Geopolitical Alpha. So let's think about the constraints and the preferences of the union and, and see if that takes anywhere. Because the preferences are, are actually pretty straightforward. Uh, we want the European project to remain together and we will do 
quote unquote, whatever it takes. There's our preferences. But what are the constraints? Because the Germans and the Bundesbank were, I think in most people's minds, the biggest constraint. That They were the referee. They were the guys that were going to keep the game honest and ensure that liberties weren't taken. And as you've pointed out so beautifully in the Pitchfork Papers, and again, in the last 45 minutes, that's no longer the case. So are there any other constraints other than inflation becoming completely unhinged that might change the path of this? I, I would say that there are. And I, I'm not a trained economist. I'm an autodidactic lover and reader of economic history and financial markets. So I'm entirely autodidactic. Um, I, my passion is language and not numbers, but I've learned to live with those um, and understand the poetry in numbers. And my econometric model has three major variables for a country, for a sort of macro environment. Number one is interest rates. Number two is the currency. And number three is employment. So capital, labor, and the external value of what I always think of as the share price of a country. Mm -hmm. Currency is its share price. And it goes up and down. And it's a bit more complicated than that, but sort of basically it's showing the balance between external and internal demand and balancing that out along with the commitment to the value of the currency itself. So am I building book value in the underlying business or economy? And the euro does three things. It nails down interest rates by tying it to a quasi-gold standard of the Deutschmark when it was the Bundesbank. And I'll come back to that in a second removes the ability of the currency to take pressure out of the system because we don't have any currencies anymore. We've got one. I'm talking about inter-European pressures. Therefore, logically, the only two that can take any strain are interest rates and employment. If I also hamstring myself on the interest rate side because I can't, raise interest rates, because otherwise the whole system will explode in my face. Well, then I'm only left with one variable that's going to take the strain. And Europe is not exactly known for the flexibility and dynamism of its employment market. So that's also inflexible. So I've got this system in which economic pressure is building and building and building and building. And the lid has been tight. I'm now moving from a three-point metaphor to a or a three-body problem to a to a pressure cooker, but just excuse my swapping metaphor horses for a second. The pressure is building and it's got nowhere to release. All that pressure in there is not being released through interest rates. It's not really being released through the labor market yet. We're seeing it starting to leak out in the euro. Mm -hmm. The euro is now coming under significant pressure. and We're we're definitely going to test those lows against the dollar. That's just like, two people with wooden legs running a race against each other. One of them is sort of slightly hopping ahead of the other one. Um, But at the moment, there is a positive disparity because at least the Americans are pretending to raise interest rates and the Europeans don't know how to. And the only one that's really left is unemployment. So to answer your question, where it will break first, given that the other two are 100% in the purview of politicians and people who have 100% 
I'll do what it takes mentality to preserve the status quo. The only variable that's, that will take it, or the one that will take it first, is employment. And as that pain rises, they can't keep the lid on the pressure cooker. And if they try, which they might do by having some sort of universal basic income and nationalizing more and more of the workforce, basically managing them as unemployed, and business is going down, then you're seeing the prosperity bath emptying very, very quickly. And at some stage, they will let go of it all. So all of it will go. The euro will have to break, and you will see the Deutschmark going back, to, or the whatever is left over as that, that hard money core, if there is such a thing anymore, will then rise to the level that productivity gains over the past 20 years would suggest that it ought to be at, and all the other currencies sort of falling away back to their own sort of level of 20-year productivity where they should be. And the interesting thing, and I said I come back to it, is that even though the Bundesbank doesn't exist anymore, the training regime that Coach Schlesinger and all his predecessors instilled into German industry, which was you have to keep making productivity gains because we're not going to let you off the hook by devaluing the currency. Right. So we will constantly do whatever we need to do to ensure the value stability of the Deutschmark in its external valuation. We will do whatever it takes. The Bundesbank said that, quite clear. That's our mandate. And they, they had almost sadistic pleasure in doing that. And they didn't care whether they brought governments down. They didn't care how much trouble they caused for the industry. So German industry, over the decades of having this very hard taskmaster that basically ensured that the price of their product was going to increase for their crucial export markets by around about 2% a year, that means they had to eke out at least 2% in productivity gains every single year. And if you've been trained that way for 30, 40 years, you don't stop just because your coach retires. Yeah. So for the last 20 years, when the coach retired and it was handed over to a Frenchman who didn't get up until 11 o'clock in the morning, then you just keep training. You turn up, you do your reps, you do your training, and that's what German industry has been doing. So it has not started lying in longer. And I don't know if you remember Chancellor Schröder, who was a sort of Thatcher in disguise. Yes. Because he, although he was a socialist, he was very much sort of interested in business. He was a corporatist. And he was the one who got Germany to untangle its sort of web of cross-holdings, making it more efficient by changing the tax law so that German businesses could, or the big businesses, the conglomerates, could untangle them at a very effective tax rate, which, by the way, is still in effect. If you The capital gains for selling a share in another business, nothing except a 5% notional dividend tax. So you're paying basically 25% on 5%, which is almost nothing. And that was a Schroeder invention, and it hasn't been changed. And um, that allowed German industry to sort of discombobulate itself. But at the same time, he was very insistent on wage moderation. So German wages have not really moved that much but productivity has gone through the roof over those 20 years because that's what the Germans always do. You know, they, they made the products better, they were competitive, and they kept prices down at home. And that should have been 
reflected in the currency, but of course it, it wasn't. It couldn't be, yeah. yeah. It couldn't be, which is why Germany is now sitting on this vast trade surplus over the years. It's disappeared now, um, suddenly in the last, I don't know, two months. It's gone from however many billion to zero. And the, the spell has been broken, but the pressure that that has created over the past 20 years is another thing that Keynes pointed out, that a consistent trade surplus is just as dangerous as a consistent trade deficit. And his original Bretton Woods model showed penalties for both. Yeah. Um, and because governments are what they are, surpluses were deemed to be a good thing, so we can't really penalise those, and we don't know how to do it anyway. So we'll just penalise people for running deficits, not realising that the whole thing is a zero-sum game anyway. So in my very simple model... If you tie down all the variables so that there is no flexibility and the economy can't breathe through those variables by adjusting accordingly, then eventually the pressure gets too high and it will break and it will break at the weakest point. And first will be unemployment or employment. That will then affect productivity, which will sort of hit the currency. And then the last ones, because they're the ones that most politically controlled, will be um, interest rates. Like it's fascinating, but you made another amazingly coherent point in your Pitchfork Papers piece about the political side of this. You know, you, you asked the question, where is the opposition to this? And the opposition has been the AFD. So, alternative for Deutschland, for people that aren't familiar with that. So, perhaps, well, perhaps if there are people that, that don't know the history of the AFD, we don't need the history of it, but if you could just talk about who they are and more importantly, I think, because the, the point really struck home with me, what's been done to marginalise them as a dissenting voice? Well, at the very, very heart of German politics and Germany's concept of itself as a modern nation is this idea of social peace, sozialer Frieden. And the word social is so overinflated and it's such a, it's such a Pavlovian word that if you put social in front of anything, then it's automatically good. The right. Germans can't even talk about, they, they refuse to accept capitalism, you know, the free markets, and they don't, they, they, so they've come up with this word that describes the type of business that they aspire to, which is family business, familienunternehmen. If you're a family business, well, then you're one of the good guys because the word family and I'm going to be treading on very dangerous ground here, but there were loads of words during the National Socialist time that were weaponized. Mm -hmm. They were sort of good words. They were good Germanic words, and family was one of them. And you can't just change language. You can't just because somebody misused language doesn't mean that you can suddenly, when, they've, when they're out of power and been defeated, that the, the, the words don't live on. So if you combine family with business then it's the family that dominates. And families are good things, and that sort of softens business. So anything that can soften the idea of any aspect of social life that is possibly divisive is to be welcomed. And the great social peace guarantee was Europe, because the Germans have been told again and again and again and again that European peace could only be guaranteed by us all coming together and being, that's the, how it was sold to Germany. 
It's not how they sold it in France. Definitely not. Friendship was always a, a question of how do we get our hands on German wealth so that we can fulfill our role as the diplomatic powerhouse in the world, which we can't do with our sclerotic economy. But So we need German money. And the Germans did not want to express their power directly because of the history that they'd just gone through in the last sort of 50, 60 years before the 1960s. So they wanted the French diplomatic power and the, the ability to project power in the world and we're happy to finance it. And, and that was what created this idea of, of the union. And it was the French took the money and the Germans got the influence. Basically, that was the trade. And this was all sold to the Germans under the cover of peace. Peace and stability. And everything that any German politician ever says has to do with stability and peace. That's how you sell it. And social justice, basically. I know that has a different connotation today, but it was this idea of social peace, mm -hmm. sozialer Frieden. Even Erhardt's great reform of the economy, which was a libertarian approach, an Austrian approach to economics, had to be sold under soziale Marktwirtschaft or social economy. So that word social has to be in there. Otherwise, you lose the game. And the AFD started off as a protest party against the euro, it was a sort of it had libertarian tendencies, and the people who founded it were business people. Basically, it was a chap called Olaf Henkel was one of the, the leading figures in the 1990s when it was first founded, and he was an ex chairman of IBM in Germany, and he was the he was head of the Employers of the Federation, so he was a, you know, a man of the bourgeoisie. He was in the right place, but their program was divisive because they wanted an end to this tax or this, this treasure grab by the French, and they could see it for what it was, and they, you know, they, they would follow every single one of our arguments. Absolutely. They recognized this was a heist, and they didn't want it. They were sound money people. They wanted Germany's independence. But their fatal flaw was that they did not have a socially peaceful part to their argument. They were wreckers. And the moment that they were wreckers, the, the entire German apparatus did one thing that it knew would make them completely unelectable, and that is they started pushing them to the right. Mm -hmm. They pushed them as far to the right as possible. You know, if you paint something red, bulls are going to run at it. And it started attracting a particular type of person who would then get more media time than the other people. Yeah. So as soon as somebody who really was nasty brown popped up, and a lot of them came from the eastern part of the country, the, the, Alte, the, the Neue Bundesländer, as they're called, the old East Germany, the media would focus on them. They would make them the spokesperson. They would get the cameras in front of them. They would quote them, not the party leaders. And that gave them... You know, the brown ones, the horrible ones, gave them this appearance of more weight in the party. It attracted more of them, and that led to them sort of tearing themselves to pieces. So the original idea of what they wanted to be was a protest party. They were effectively maneuvered right onto the edge. And, and that was you know, Merkel that comes from East Germany. She knows how mm -hmm. to play filthy, dirty party politics. 
She knows how that system works and she's a master at it, or was. It's all short term. It prevented a safety valve appearing for that sort of protest. It prevented debate. The AFD were never invited onto the talk shows where most of the Germans get their sort of arguments from and they see debates happening, but they're debates that are very curated in the national media and they've succeeded. You know, the AFD is now, you can't even mention that they might possibly have some decent points. Well, there's a woman in the EU parliament called Christina something or other, who speaks very good English, and she's, she's been very strong on the COVID or the, the COVID nonsense. And she's, a very, she's been very strong on personal liberty and, and you know, the, the, the roots of our Western democracy. And it's very difficult for them to shut, get her to shut up because she talks such sense. They try to label her with that sort of AFD branding, which is effectively says anything they say has got to be rubbish. And if you even think that they're good, anything that they say is good, then you're obviously a, a, a raging Nazi. Yeah, and it's very dangerous because there is no real debate going on in Germany. And because Germans have this Kantian idea that common good is above everything, and they never really question who dictates what the common good is. Um, but the moment that you quote Kant, you've lost in Germany. The opposition have lost. So, uh, so there is no, there's no political debate around an alternative. None. I want to talk to you before we finish about uh, the Pitchfork Papers, but before we get to that, um, you mentioned Merkel there, and so I'm, I'm curious, kind of a two-part question, post-Merkel, uh, I'm interested in her changing legacy and how quickly that seems to be coming under some threat, given the current state of German energy prices. So, so perhaps you, you can think? give us a... Yeah, perhaps, perhaps you could just just give us a sense of um, of of the 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 internal discussion in Germany. We look we look at it from the outside, and for for anyone who hasn't spent time in Germany, doesn't understand it. It's a simple case of Putin's turned the tap off, the Germans are screwed, and someone's going to have to make a concession somewhere. But but how does this energy shortage fit in with this idea of social and family and good? and sacrifice for the greater good. How, how does that all fit in? And where is Merkel's legacy wrapped up in this whole situation? Well, my understanding of, um, of Merkel is that she was the consummate tactician and she was without principle. Her only principle was getting hold of power and then keeping it. And to that end, I don't think she could help herself. She did two things that have been disastrous for Germany. Number one, she maneuvered the traditional center-right parties to the left in order to outflank the Greens and the SPD at every single policy opportunity, every single one. Her decision to shutter the nuclear industry in Germany was purely opportunistic. She saw an opportunity to overtake the Greens on the left by taking away their, their signature theme tune and capturing that flag for herself. It didn't matter to her in the least what the consequences were. Didn't think it through. Her instinct was opportunity, grab it, outmaneuver them. And it worked. And, and she made the SPD, she squeezed the life out of them. It's the first thing she did. Second thing she did was 
throughout her 15, 16-year tenure, she eliminated every single intelligent, principled politician who could have caused her any threat in a political kingdom. Every single talented politician she effectively delivered to the abattoir, either hoisted them by their own petards or deliberately maneuvered them into a position where they knew that they would have to give up. The body count is enormous. And because of that, she effectively decimated the talent pool in the CDU-CSU and replaced it with metropolitan people whose loyalty to her was unquestioned. And she could do that because she was the only German chancellor since, in the Bundesrepublik, time, so since 1950 or 1949, who did not have a home power base they had to satisfy. She was behooven to nobody. There was no local CDU organization. She'd come from nowhere. She'd sort of been magicked by call. She wanted a woman from the East to put into his cabinet and polish and say, look how inclusive we are. She was a diversity candidate, if you will, but she had no power base of her own. And she was ruthless in getting rid of Call and just assuming his power structure. But she was beholden to nobody. That meant that she could murder who she wanted politically. And it would never come fall back on her because she had the power and she knew how to play it. So that confluence of events and the singularity of the Merkel chancellorship on the back of the mighty Call and the vacuum that he left, that has created a party whose ability to function as a strong, robust, principled party, which they always were, has evaporated. They're just, they are really hollow. And Merz, who I know personally and I admire greatly, he's not going to cut it. He's, he's left it too long. He's been out on the wing too much. He was too tarnished by her. She recognized him as one of the most brilliant opponents, and she did what she could to cut the legs underneath him, uh, from underneath him. And she did a pretty good job because it's, it's taken him an enormous amount of effort just to get back into the position that he's got, but the party that he's inherited is wasted. So Germany is coming into this crisis with a severely depleted political bench, I think, exhausted from this effort that's been required of it to somehow step up to a position of authority in foreign policy now that sort of America has effectively pulled back, but they're still being manipulated by American interests. Germany has never really been very good at articulating foreign policy. It's got no army to speak of because von der Leyen completely stripped that down to its bare bones, but they don't have enough petrol to fill the tanks. I mean, I mean the real tanks. So I don't believe that the country is in a politically in a very strong position. It's very weak. And you ask how they will, how they'll deal with it. Well, my guess is they will appeal to the sort of post-war solidarity. You know, the last time we were in this situation, we all got together and, and there'll be sort of pictures and images and narratives around how our grandparents all pulled together and they switched the lights off and they put an extra pair of socks on and that's how we'll get through this. There, there will be a consolidated effort or concerted effort to rekindle some of that old wartime spirit or post-war reconstruction spirit. And it'll be framed in those terms. I'm pretty sure of it. 
But again, you know, and and that will be part of we'll do what it takes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This doing what it takes is um, it started off defined to the euro, and it's it's spreading its wings. Remarkably I don't through. think it was ever. I don't think it was ever confined to the euro. I think um, Draghi spoke as a politician. What he was doing was expressing political will through his role as the chap who happened to be in charge of the printing press. His expression, I've, I've now come to see, is one of pure political will. We want this, and we don't care what we have to do to do it, to keep it. We don't care. Yeah. Well, and, and interestingly, as Tim Geithner said in his memoirs, that that was an off-the-cuff, but whatever it takes. It wasn't a planned ECB communique. This was Draghi jotting down on a napkin before he went out there, whatever it takes. You know, it's, it, it's yeah. remarkable how these moments in time turn things so dramatically. Uh, well, listen, before, before we wrap up, I, I just want to talk about the Pitchfork Papers and what you're doing and, and so people get a chance to, to hear what it's about and what you're going to do with it because it's, you know, your writing is just a, a, such a joy. You, know, you mentioned you. Ben Hunt. Ben, similarly, every time I get a chance to read something of Ben's, it's just... It's something you stop what you're doing to read because it's just so beautifully constructed. So, so talk a little bit about the history of the Pitchfork Papers and what your plans are going forward. Ah, uh, yes. Well, the history is very simple. When we were all locked down, I've been wanting to start writing and disciplining myself to write other than just for myself and in business memos, which, is where I've, which has been my um, only outlet over the last, I don't know, 20 years, 25 years. Um, I thought, if not now, when? I, I'd run out of excuses on, at the end of March 2020, sitting at home on a beautiful Irish spring. Um, I mean, it was beautiful in, in March, April, May. It was just fabulous weather. And so I started, and I'd heard about these sort of newsletter things, and so I thought, well, I'll write one. And I just started, and I had, I don't know, 20 subscribers because the people who accidentally bumbled into my website and put their name in something. I didn't even know what they put it in. And I just started writing. And um, and that became a habit. It started then becoming, I, I dedicate my Friday mornings to it. And previously, I'd done what I did with you, which is if, there, if I was in conversation with somebody, with a friend around a topic, I'd write a lengthy email. I thought, I started thinking, okay, well, I can repurpose those. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no particular purpose other than to just write. And I wanted to give myself the freedom to write whatever I felt like writing. But it always sort of came back to business in some way because I think everybody has to have an understanding of politics today. Again, Ben Hunt refers to it as the water we swim in, which is a quote from um, David Foster Wallace's address to students in, uh, I think, 20 years ago. And this idea of taking the world for granted, you know, where that sort of I refer to as the top left, bottom right generation. Interest rates started up at 12, 15% when we were in our early 20s, and they're down where they are today. And we've had the full benefit of that. We could not have had a, a better time, and it will probably go down in history as one of the fillet pieces of the modern Enlightenment era. You know, never have so many had it so good. We just haven't. And I think the Pitchfork Papers, I've been starting to write them because my own awakening 
that I could not sit on the fence anymore, that I had to have a position. And the feeling also that as a sort of small C conservative, I was not feeling politically represented anywhere anymore. I felt that I hadn't moved very much, but the entire playing field had moved and it had moved dramatically to the left, was becoming far more collectivist. I hated it. I knew it was bad for business. It was rotten for our prosperity. And I had to start examining my own belief system and say, okay, what do you believe in? And, you know, lo and behold, I, you come and find yourself, oh, if I do undo all the wrapping, I'm a libertarian. Who, who'd have guessed? Right, who, who'd have thought, and, yeah. And, and that move, I think, from sort of vaguely disinterested conservative at the election, that's who I'd probably vote for without really paying very much attention to the policy platform because they were, you know, they were our side. A deep dislike of socialists and socialism because they knew they were bad for business and bad for prosperity and bad for liberty and all those things without actually ever having gone too deeply into that miasma to, to structure my own philosophy around it. The Pitchfork Papers suddenly became my vehicle for exploring my own journey to clarity around topics that interest me, which is human-scale business, thoughtful leadership, liberty, natural rights, and the destructive power of overweening government, which we are going to see accelerate as we head towards the end of the cycle. So that's what I started writing for. Pitchfork papers, I didn't have a name for it at the beginning. I didn't even give it very much thought when I came up with the name. And it was only because I was outside turning hay for the horses, I think. And I had the pitchfork in my hand and I thought, actually, you know, what I'm doing with this sort of very simple instrument is picking up heavy grass that's sort of knotted together, aerating it so that it's consumable and carrying it over to the horses. I thought that's quite a good metaphor. And at the same time, aware that this simple instrument could also be used as a weapon. And in fact, it was... The reason that the pitchfork has this connotation is because it was the only weapon that the working classes, the peasants, could have access to that gave them the ability to keep a better armed enemy foot soldier at distance. A knife against a halberd or a pike, you couldn't do anything. The pitchfork is the only instrument. You can't do it with a rake. (laughs) You can't do it with a spade. But you can with a pitchfork. So the pitchfork has this, it's a simple instrument for turning heavy stuff into digestible light stuff and getting air into it, which is what I hope I'm doing with some of these topics. But at the same time, it can be weaponized, if need be, in a very simple way. And you get shot, you know, it's no good against an AK-15, but it's, you know, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of resistance. And I think that is at the heart of what I'm doing at the moment. I'm trying to articulate a disappointed, non-domiciled conservative. I'm trying to reconcile that with where I'm standing and try to find a way of articulating my love for the system that we've come from, our Enlightenment culture, our Christian heritage, our business and free market system that's created so much prosperity, and at the same time, put my foot down and say, I'm not standing for this. And if I have to die on this hill, I will. Fantastic. Well, the writing is beautiful every time. It really is an absolute treat. So, so just let people know where they can sign up to follow you. I have I've gone all in on Substack. 
goodandprosper.substack.com. And that's where you can find me or on LinkedIn at Stephen Wilkinson. And there's always, always put a link to it every Friday or on Twitter where I am occasionally. Um, and I'm gathering support thanks to your marketing efforts on my behalf. Well, you deserve a lot more support, as anyone that's listened to this will now understand why. Um, Stephen, there's, there's so much more that we could talk about, but I'm conscious of your time. I'm conscious of a speech I have to give shortly. So we'll stop it for now, but hopefully we can do this again sometime because it's, uh, every chance I get to talk to you, I just I just enjoy so much. So thanks for taking so much time. And Thank you so much, Grant. Time. Have a great time. Thank you yeah, for having me on the show. Bye. The great beauty of having the conversations I've had over the years has been the ability it's given me to build a network of friendships with people like Sir Stephen. Men and women who teach me far more than I ever teach them and who generously share the fruits of their lives and their experiences with me and by extension, of course, you. The email correspondence which preceded this conversation, as well as the conversation itself, has been enormously helpful, I have to say, in reshaping my thinking about the EU at a critical time. And while I still believe it to be ultimately doomed to failure, there are perhaps a few more desperate measures that they're going to deploy before that day arrives. Now, Sir Stephen's wonderful writings are available for free on Substack at goodandprosper.substack.com. And he can be found on Twitter at SKN Wilkinson, and I would urge you to sign up for both. Any gold tier subscribers who haven't yet watched my conversation with Sir Stephen as part of the About Time series from April should remedy that because the wisdom he shares in that incredible conversation is truly life-changing for anybody looking to build and run a successful business. That's it from me for another episode. I'll be back again with another podcast very soon. In the meantime, as always, my thanks to you for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.